The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those of you who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where you shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guests are Drs. J.J. and Desiree Hurtak, Questions of Life and the Keys of Enoch for 2010 and beyond. Drs. Hurtak will be with us shortly. To listen to this full show and all our past and future shows, become a Veritas member. This way, you can help Veritas continue broadcasting and allowing me to ask the questions you really want to ask. For only $6 per month or 20 cents per day, you will be part of this community and will be able to download and take with you all our shows, 61 to date. Those are hundreds of Veritas hours and thousands of production hours devoted to one goal only, the truth. You also receive access to our members-only forum, the Manticore, where you can interact with members from around the world. What we discuss at the Manticore, you won't see in the mainstream media ampoule. Why wait? Head on over to our website, VeritasShow.com, and click on subscribe. You will receive immediate access. 
And finally, we're getting our shows transcribed. And one by one, they'll become available for download. Since we're working in chronological order, you'll see episode number one first, and then the rest will continue appearing as they become available. Just go to the Veritas store link, and you'll be able to purchase them there. As a benefit to all Veritas members, you'll receive a 50% discount. And if you want to receive a free membership and are 100% qualified to transcribe, send an email to transcribe at veritasshow.com. I will assign the next show in the queue for transcription. But please, only 100% qualified people and only if you can finish the transcription in a timely manner and can commit to it. It is true that our senses perceive differently. When I started reading the transcriptions, even though I was the one interviewing, I started absorbing new aspects of the interviews that I didn't notice before. So check them out. I'll be adding new transcriptions for download once they are received and proofread. And I see a lot of people purchased MMS, the Miracle Mineral Solution, after hearing Kerry Cassidy and Bill Ryan mention it during our last show. Folks, I hardly endorse anything unless I try the product or service myself. Just go to our main webpage, veritasshow.com, and scroll down. You'll see the MMS link there. Read all about it. And Bill and Carrie from Project Camelot, they told me that it was the only product that addressed the strong flu they got on the way back from Russia. And it's only about $20 for a one-year supply. I don't think you can get that from anywhere else. And next week's special guest is Stephen Bassett, Exopolitical Year in Review. The ex-conference 2010 has been confirmed, and it will be taking place at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. in May. Visit our website for more information on that one. Also, another conference of importance, the International UFO Congress in Laughlin, Nevada, from February 21st through the 27th. What a list of speakers, folks. Visit our website and click on the banner for more information. And guess what? Time for Veritas to make another appearance. If you will be there, make sure to say hello. I will be there. I had a terrific time meeting some of you at the last C-SETI conference in October. I hope to meet many more of you there. At the Veritas store, there are Veritas buttons that you can get and wear so we can identify each other. I will also be recording audio and video interviews with the speakers, so I hope to be able to meet you. Send me an email and let me know if you will be attending. I'm curious to know. To get in touch with me, simply send me an email to mel, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. I haven't talked about the swine flu lately, but I have to share a personal story with you that's worth mentioning. First of all, every corner pharmacy, at least in the area where I live, still has in bold red letters H1N1 swine flu vaccine available here. And I presume because I'm referring to a very large chain pharmacy that you may see that if you're in the United States and perhaps even abroad. Today, my wife took our daughter to the pediatrician. Now, those of you who have been listening to the show for some time may remember how my wife had asked the pediatrician and one of his nurses about the swine flu vaccine a few months ago, and they both said they were not taking it because it was not properly tested, uh, it had possible side effects, etc. The doctor had said they were keeping some 
in case someone essentially begged for it. I felt relieved knowing that our doctor had common sense. Then my wife returned a couple of months later and the doctor, apparently having forgotten what he had told my wife before, said, quote, we have the swine flu vaccine available here if you, your daughter and your husband want it, unquote. Almost like pushing it. Obviously, he does not know I do this show. My wife then told him, doctor, do you remember our last conversation about this? I guess he was caught and basically moved on to other topics. To save face, my wife didn't press him about it and for his sudden change of heart. Now, it gets better, or actually worse. Get this. Our daughter was sick today, so she took her to the doctor. The same nurse who had told her she was not taking the swine flu shot last year told her today that the pharmaceutical company called the other day recalling all the swine flu vaccines in the office allegedly because they were not potent enough. And she told the supplier that they had administered all of them, so they had nothing to, to return. One staff member's son, a young, healthy, and strong Marine with no history of illness whatsoever, got the flu shot a few months ago. The next day after getting the shot, he started vomiting blood and spent months in a wheelchair. Guess what? He has been diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And although he's off the wheelchair now, he now walks with a, an abnormal gait and with the assistance of a cane. Needless to say, his family is devastated and the nurse who told my wife is concerned because she took the swine flu vaccine when she was pregnant. Remember, she was the nurse who initially said she wouldn't take it last year. To those of you listening, if stories like this one don't make you think, I don't know what else would. I don't like to take this long to share stories, but if I can compel you, one person at a time, and hopefully prevent what you just heard from happening, maybe you want to tell one person, and that person will tell another one, then it was worth the time. Don't you think? And now, get ready to find out why the powers that be don't want you to read the book and the material we'll be discussing tonight. Can we be taught that a greater unity can and must occur between the scientific and spiritual pathways in order for the problems of Earth to be solved? The ultimate purpose is the advancement of humanity with the goal of changing our orientation so that we are prepared for a higher spiritual attunement and a quantum shift that will move humanity and the Earth forward in the next step in our evolution. Get ready for the knowledge of the true science of life that will enable each and all of us together to make the quantum leap. Questions of Life and the Keys of Enoch for 2010 and beyond. Doctors JJ and Desiree Hurtak are coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Great music you hear right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases, right there at Jamendo.com. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. This is Nick Redfern, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Dr. J.J. Hertak is a futurist, social scientist, and author of many books, including The Book of Knowledge, The Keys of Enoch, translated into over 15 languages. His most recent book is entitled The End of Suffering, which he co-authored with Russell Targ. He's joined by his wife, Dr. Desiree Hertak, who co-authored with him The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Text and Commentary an ancient Coptic text, as well as additional writings. They are founders of the Academy for Future Science, an international organization that works to bring an understanding of the science and consciousness of the multi-universe in which we live. To this end, they have created numerous musical CDs and DVDs that incorporate positive affirmations, sacred music, and graphics designed to awaken the consciousness of humanity. They have won 14 International Film Festival Awards for their graphic films and animation on consciousness exploration entitled Mergaba, Initiation, and The Light Body. The Hurtaks have also worked closely with indigenous people throughout the world, including those of the Sulu Shaman Credo Mutua and the Savante Indians in Brazil. They have explored most of the unique archaeological sites around the planet, including the underwater structures of Yonaguni, Japan, and have used computer equipment to explore the Mayan temples of the Yucatan and ancient pyramids of Giza in Egypt. They were also instrumental in the findings of the tomb of Osiris on the Giza Plateau. And directly from Northern California, Drs. J.J. Hertak and Desiree Hertak, welcome to the Veritas Show. How are you? We're great, and welcome you. Also, your radio audience throughout the world, we appreciate your time and interest in our work, Mel, and all the great work you represent. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. There are so many things I want to talk about. But first, let me just tell you that a couple of years ago, I was listening to a very important radio show, and they were talking about your book, one of them. The Keys of Enoch. And somebody said to me, do you realize that the powers that be really don't want people to read that book? Have you ever heard that? I haven't heard it said that way. I know that the, the keys are dynamite in certain areas of science and theology because they represent a cosmology of consciousness that challenges certain assumptions in orthodoxy. But I would say that all things said... Over the last 36 years, we've been very successful in getting the message out in 15 different languages to over 100 countries. So we're very thankful that open-minded, progressive thinkers see the the Keys of Enoch as a launching point for a whole new threshold of experience. Right, Mel. And uh, basically what we feel is that what was put down early on has educated many people and proven completely accurate in most cases in terms of sacred areas of the world, the keys of uh, connecting pyramids around the world, as well as some of the astronomical realities like Orion being significant. When the keys were written about the significance of Orion, no one understood it, but now we know that we're actually sitting in the Orion arm of the galaxy. So there's some very interesting things that the keys came out with that really have just completely been confirmed by now. What I said before, that the powers that be don't want you to read this book, and I've heard this not only from one person, but, but a few. Why do you believe the content of this book might be controversial, and some people may not want this information out? I think in the intellectual traditions of the East and West, uh, particularly in the West over the last 400 years, there's been a separation between religion and science, or what some would call issues of consciousness uh, and 
interdimensional levels of knowledge, and the keys of Enoch represent a marriage between the scientific and the spiritual, the concept of co-creation that we have by using both sides of the brain, the left, which is the, um, the scientific, and the, the right, which is the multidimensional. And the keys of Enoch bring together these two language processes, the visual as well as the inner intuitive and spiritual. And I think it's a threat to some people who do not want us to focus, let us say humanity, to focus on exploring new perspectives. So it reminds me a little bit of the movie Avatar. I'm sure most of your readers, uh, listeners have seen it. And you have the two sides. You have those that are becoming consciously aware of how to help the planet, how to work together, how to link together. And then you have the other side of those people that just say, you know, let's take all we can get, let's do what we can, and let's keep people under control so that we can do what we want to do. And of course, we're not trying to side with uh, either thing where you say, look, this is the information, and for those who understand it and want to move with it, they can, and for those who don't, you know, that's their own choice. And we think choice is the real key on this planet. And the keys are now available in a color edition, a new color edition, so for those interested, they can go to our website, uh, www.keysofenoch.org, and uh, they'll be pleased to, to see so many of the pictures that we had over the last 30-some years in black and white now in color. So this is a very unique aspect. I have it right here, and I have I guess I have the newer version because I see a lot of colored pictures. But I remember, and, and well, no, I don't remember because I was not there, but in the past, for example, early Christianity in Africa was far more scientific and female in its orientation, which is the opposite of what we see today, more male-orientated and less scientific. I'm glad you mentioned that in the past, you had the marriage of religion and science. What caused the change? Well, if I can start, you know, you mentioned one of our books was the Gospel of Mary. It's actually the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. So, yes. and, and we know that she was a very main player. And we've looked at a lot of the ancient scriptures, and we've done some interpretation of most of the ancient Nakh Hammadi uh, library, which is the early Christians who were li- living in Egypt. They were Coptic. And if you look at it, it was talking about multi-dimensions. If you look at things now, the superstring theory is talking about 11, 12, 13 dimensions. Well, so were the Coptics. They were talking about 13 eons, 13 realities. They were talking about the fact that there was a, a local hierarchy, and then even beyond that, there was a greater hierarchy of intelligence. And they were influenced on this planet by some of these uh, fallen thought forms. So we need to uh, look beyond. And this is part of the, the message, and I think many people got caught up in some of these lower thought forms. If we look very carefully at the beginnings of Western uh, civilization, as <clears throat> empires were extended across the Near East and North Africa, uh, the, the, the higher gnosis or the higher knowledge behind the Christian religion became dogmatized to accommodate certain structures of power dealing with diverse civilizations. And unfortunately, uh, Christianity became, like many religions, more of a system of authority, de-emphasizing the inner spiritual dimension of exploration, what we now recognize as part of the movement of consciousness awakening that goes beyond authority, recognizing that that uh, uh, the cosmic view emphasizes process over structure. Consciousness evolution takes place over material evolution. There's a whole dynamic that was there in the first couple of centuries of the Coptic African church that was simply lost as the intellectual revolution 
began to emphasize more and more dogma. Many people talk about how we need the return of the divine feminine in order to bring balance to, to, to the planet. Do, do you agree with that? Definitely. We have seen in Israel the finding of mosaic floor patterns that show female figures around the symbol of the fish. Certainly the feminine mosaics are now being uncovered in Italy. The, the whole aspect of, uh, of religion in general, particularly in East Africa and Asia, has emphasized the aspect of compassion, love, and co-evolution that comes from the imagery of the motherly aspect of life and nourishment. And so this side, I believe, is so important in unifying the religions and spiritual movements of the world into a positive preparation for a great quantum change that is going to come to our planet. Desiree and I just returned from the Parliament of the World's Religions in Melbourne, Australia, where we were presenters, and to see so many different uh, religious thinkers, philosophers, psychologists gather together with the Aboriginal peoples of, of Australia, which have been completely overlooked, is a sign of, of, of great humility, it's a sign of compassion, it's a sign of putting people together in closer resonance and closer dialogue, which I think is so important for the the great step forward that we as a planetary humanity must take now. Right, and I think we just have to find the balance. It's always been the masculine energy, and now we need the feminine energy. And strange enough, the feminine energy is there in the transformation. So I do believe that she, or that divine energy, we even equate that in some cases with the Holy Spirit, where people are getting insights into uh, what's going on, maybe what they should do even a moment's notice, they get these insights. We think that's all that divine feminine aspect within themselves, uh, connected with higher forces of light, intelligence, connected with the Holy Spirit, that's coming into their lives right now. So we see this echoed in many uh, of the great thinkers, such as Jürgen Bultmann in Germany, Elaine uh, Pegels, formerly of Harvard University. We see a, an understanding amongst the academics of the Western world, recognizing that it has to be an understanding of both the male as well as the female aspects of spirituality and consciousness. And not to spend time uh, giving James Cameron another commercial for the great movie Avatar, but if those of you who, who watch the movie, you saw how first they introduced the, the male warrior, the father, who was we, we thought was the leader, but all of a sudden the woman comes along, the wife, and she's actually the leader, the spiritual leader. I wonder if the, the if James Cameron really studied all this ancient knowledge and put it into place in the movie. Well, especially when you talk about these people who were so much in tune with life and nature. And, of course, that's the whole plot of the movie, in a sense, at the end, even all of nature starts to support them. And I think that can happen to us, you know, moving on to other things like the planet, what's going on right now. We call her Mother Earth. I mean, if we got more in tune with nature, which is, in a sense, also the feminine side of uh, our, our lives and our understanding, we can really make a difference. And this is what I think was shown in Avatar, that that feminine nature is sensitive and is alive and can really transform. You're one of the great divers that work with uh, James Cameron on the wonderful movie Titanic, Vincent Pace, who was with us in our expedition in Japan, diving under the ocean near Yanaguni, where we uncovered with the Japanese a whole series of underwater structures, landforms, pyramid structures and large face forms in several locations that re reminded one of the large statues on Easter Island. And so the whole process 
what was sunk thousands of years ago under the ocean is a, uh, shall we say, a interesting drama of what we may be seeing now in terms of the vast changes with climate change. And the Keys of Enoch, as early as 1973, as you look at your copy of the book, on page 315, have a map of the world. And that map has a series of 12 longitudinal lines, one of which is going through Asia, specifically in the area of Yonaguni, Japan, at the location of what is called 121 degrees, 27 um, minutes of longitude east, which is why the Japanese called Desiree and I to work with them in Japan and the whole finding of these underwater pyramids is so striking for our time. And what's really interesting, if we can talk about that one particular line, it also, and this is marked in the book way before these discoveries, it also goes through a small, teeny little island called the Isle of Flores. And some of your listeners might realize that this is the exact location where uh, scientists have now found what's called the Homo Florensius, which were these hobbit people, these little uh, one meter, three feet tall people that lived about um, 800,000 years ago. And, you know, it, they were different species. We had the Neanderthals, we have us, which were different species, and now we have the Homo florensis. As well as the Heidelberg man. So we had four different forms of humanity or proto-humanity at that time. Well, I'm sharing this story with you via James Cameron to show you that the Book of Knowledge, Keys of Enoch, mapped out two of these important locations years ago before the findings were made by scientific teams, both on land as well as under the ocean. So the Keys of Enoch represent a roadmap of how history connects with the present and prepares us for future worlds. And that, to some, is a threat. To others, it's an opportunity. Before we dive into this gem of a book, and uh, Desra, you mentioned The Hobbits. Some people think that these are, this, this is a mythology, but there are myths of the Greek gods. How do we make the distinction between true beings coming and visiting and this tendency for humanity to create myths out of uh, our history? Is it history that has been mythologized or mythology that is being uh, historized? Yeah, now, we say we're demythologizing history. That's the actual <laughs> term, and my husband's used that many, many times. And the thing is, these hobbits are actually found there. I mean, archaeologists, anyone can go to the Internet and look for Homo florensius, and you'll find them as the species was, at, in fact, in one of the main... Uh, Science and nature... Uh, publications. Yeah, so these are real solid situations. Now, you know, whether they lived in a, a middle kingdom many, you know, thousands of years ago in another world like Lord of the Rings, that might be, you know, mythology. But the fact that they did live on this planet right in that area, just south of, uh, of Taiwan in that area, uh, is definitely confirmed. And we feel that we are finding more and more. We're finding the giants as well. In fact, that's been part of our research. Yes, in, in Africa some years ago, we uncovered a series of footprints, uh, one of which was shown at the, uh, the University of Vienna back in the year 2000 at a major conference on archaeological anomalies. In fact, the Japanese set a, a, sent a film team out to interview us and to film this large footprint, which was over a meter in length, and show the, the structure of the human footprint in what clay at that time, millions of years ago. So we hypothesize that when our planet had less uh, gravity and uh, there was uh, an opportunity in the lighter atmosphere to grow large plants and animals, humans at that time or proto-humans would be of large size 
as shown again in, in James Cameron's new film, The Avatar. So right. we have really the, the proof and the footprint to show it. The Keys of Enoch, the book is a very extensive book, folks, over 600 pages. In the past few weeks, I've interviewed number, a number of guests who uh, talk about Enoch. First, it was Zachariah Sitchin, and then recently Crystal Clark. We're always trying to find answers, especially who are we, why are we here. So what does the book tell us about who we are and why we are here? Well, the book tells us that we are an experiment of the divine intelligence and that we have reached a point of, of having a update, uh, a, should we say, reprogramming of our consciousness, preparing us for cosmic citizenship. Uh, the cycle of experimentation, we would call the kindergarten of myths, is now passing very, very quickly, and we're at a point of reevaluating all the world myths not only through, through various thinkers of Joseph Campbell, but also through uh, expeditions and discoveries that, are, that have tremendous consequences. Whole libraries are being uncovered under Egypt and Syria and Israel and other parts of the world that suggest that there was a parallel tradition of knowledge that always accepted as a reality that we were just one of many life forms in the universe, no big thing. And at, at, at a point of time, the teachers or architects of this greater experiment or schoolhouse would return to the scene and graduate the students who were bright and prepared to go on. And I think this is really the power punch of what we're saying in coded form, that everyone has a birthright to co-evolve and co-create within the laws that govern the universe. The universe is bio-friendly, it's positive, and we're going through some, shall we say, negative experiments in our misuse of science and traditional religious habits, and we must overcome this with a loving understanding of the greater dream and the greater opportunity to share. And, of course, Enoch himself, and we acknowledge the same Enoch, was written in uh, Genesis, the Bible, first book of the Bible, chapter 5. And what happened is that God took him up, and then you turn to the book of Enoch, which is an ancient book that's different from the Keys of Enoch. It's called the Book of Enoch. And he yes. talks about all these different heavens and realms and the intelligences that are in them. And this is, you know, what is this, 6,000 or plus years ago? We even think it's older than 6,000 years, but theoretically one would say something like 6,000 years ago, talking about all these other realms with all these different intelligences. And then God brought him back. He wrote it, the book, and then God took him again. So he never died on this planet, which is very interesting. But he really was a type of prophet giving information about the higher world. So what does that mean to us? That means we're part of a greater cosmology. And so when people look at the problems on planet Earth and this, that, and the other, we feel you have to look at something greater than just this planet. I, I know you've been talking about this when you look at solar flares or, or galactic uh, cosmic ray flux. You know, these things are much more vast than what's just happening on planet Earth, and that's what the Keys try to do, open up people's minds to see that greater picture. So was Enoch a real person and a real geographical location in the Middle East. And the reason why I ask is because I've heard that the Bible has a lot of reference to the Book of Enoch. However, there are no footnotes referring to it. You're right. Uh, the, there, there is a reference in the little small epistle of St. Jude in the New Testament that refers to the return of Enoch with the, the hosts. Uh, it's, uh, the the uh, Book of Enoch is referred to in the coming of the Lord with this host, and more specifically, Enoch appears in many different uh, literary uh, traditions. For example, the Arabic-speaking world refers to him as Idris, the Ethiopic text, the Book of Enoch, made a great splash in the 18th uh, century. There's 
of a plethora of information suggesting in uh, in so many words that it was just as important as the book of Isaiah in in the intertestamental times. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947 have a whole section on the book of Enoch and the giants, and so it's a a very important text that has been largely overlooked as a, as a secondary or pseudopigrapha text that is not used for theology or for dogma, but rather for for literary purposes in history. Well, the problem is, of course, is that um, it was all taking place before the time of Noah, and we feel that really the Bible shifts at about the time of Noah and then shifts again probably closer to the time of Abraham. And these things you can kind of start correlating with history as we know it. If the time of Noah um, took place something like maybe 10,000, 12,000 years ago, we know that there was a flood on this planet. I mean, all the legends throughout the world talk about this flood, so that Enoch must have been way before that. And there's a possibility that these people who supposedly the early, early patriarchs lived, you know, 800 years, 900 years. Enoch himself was symbolic. He lived like 365 years or something like that. Um, you know, this could be something that maybe they weren't so connected with this planet as we know it. Maybe they had the ability to do more cosmic travel and more... Uh, but Desiree, speaking of the cosmology of Enoch, because Enoch was written as a text 134, approximately B.C., and some scholars like Melek believe that Enoch was written even before the book of Genesis and was used as a readoption of the editing of the Bible as we have it. So there's many schools of thought that Enoch himself, the, the, the patriarch Enoch, is the person that we are referring to when we speak of the keys of Enoch, one who is a supramental being, a celestial being who was responsible for the information source that is behind the keys of Enoch. Right, and we don't talk too much about the experience itself, but Dr. Hertak actually, of course, it's written in the beginning of the book, was sitting in a state of meditation, and a pillar of light, an energy of light came over him, and he heard the words, are you ready, and he said he was, and then, like, literally his entire body was taken, and this was in connection with Enoch. So he, you know, Enoch is alive and well, as many other lords of light and higher beings, what we call ultra-terrestrials, not extraterrestrials, but ultra-terrestrials, are alive and well. And, you know, they can come down, like Mekizeldeck, a very interesting character. Uh, he actually supposedly was motherless and fatherless, and he was here at the time of Abraham. So that's a very, you know, who are these people? And we do feel they're real. They're, they're not mythology. So we don't want to speak of this in a non-sacred way, because these are very sacred figures of intellectual and spiritual history. And so I'm simply saying to our audience that there is a very profound tradition that has come down, both in the Judaic and the Christian, in the Islamic, Sufi tradition, even some of the other religions of the Near East that regard Enoch as one of the great thinkers in the context of time projected backwards that gives us ciphers and insights into where we are going presently with the experiment of Mother Earth. You said that the Book of Enoch has probably been overlooked. Is it overlooked or perhaps purposely ignored? Uh, if we look at this very, very critically, according to Margaret Baker, a scholar in England, who writes of Enoch as a lost prophet, she argues that Enoch has been uh, ignored. Uh, we would tend to feel largely that the book has been overlooked because the way that intellectual uh, history evolved 
the power struggles in the Middle East, scholars buried the documents under the, the sands of the Near East. It wasn't until well, well over a millennium and a half later, 1,500 years plus, that these documents were recovered. We're just now beginning to appreciate the fantastic documents at Nakamadi in Egypt that uh, give us these wonderful, interesting recreations of the teachings of Jesus and his disciples, both male and female. Right, and this answers some of your original question. You know, the Nakamadi talks about how our world is just like a speck of dust in the midst of a greater light realm, and then even that light realm is a speck of dust in the midst of another light realm. So all these things are starting to come to the fore, and let's face it, for the most part, for most of even the last century, people just had this idea, if they understood at all, that there was heavens, earth, and an underworld. And in the heavens you had God, Christ, and a few angels. You know, some people didn't even put Christ there, of course. And that's about it. Now we're starting to see how there are multiple levels of intelligence, how, there's, how we're really are the speck of dust, one little you know, race of species, and probably we're out there in the stars as well, which is why I think that, you know, we'll see that we're not evolved from this Earth. But um, anyway, one race of species is in the midst of maybe 70 races that live in the galaxy or in the local universe, and then that has other repercussions on other levels. So we're starting to understand that. Of course, the Book of Enoch wasn't understood when people had such a limited cosmology, but now we're starting to understand it. And Mel, the interesting aspect of the keys, as well as the historic books of Enoch, refer to angelic contact with the higher worlds. They refer to the the giants. They refer to the experiments that got out of hand. Chapter 7 of the Book of Enoch, the historic book, is an anti-cloning section that tells us what happens when men begin to interbreed with these uh, not-so-nice life forms. And genetic engineering led to the demise of humanity and the cries of humanity went up to the heavens and called for the intervention of the celestial powers we refer to them historically as the archangels and angels. Today we would call them the ultra-terrestrial powers. And we could say that this is a type of template for what we have seen in the recent times of the last 36 years, that genetic experimentation may take us in the wrong direction. We have seen also the implications behind the scenes of uh, other life forms out there in space that may be experimenting with the human race, as we find in Genesis chapters 5 and 6. So this is a a wake-up call, we believe, the finding of the historic documents in Egypt and Israel, other parts of the world, seem to tell us the story of the myth of the eternal return, that when things get out of hand and we take uh, advantage of our personal freedoms to use science and religion out of context and out of harmony, the other powers that be from the schoolhouse of the universe must come to help us. But this is really the key to the Keys of Enoch, because the Keys of Enoch tell us that all this information we're starting to understand, from superstring theory, M-theory, to the archaeology uh, findings of Homo Florentius and all the other things that you can talk about, actually are being given to us or programmed into our species so we can be prepared for that next quantum leap. I mean, if they left us and just showed up like in 1950 with our that consciousness, I mean, we wouldn't know what was going on. And you mentioned uh, a, few, a couple of minutes ago that we are a speck of dust, and I agree. And I sound like a broken record when I always say that for people to look up at the sky at night and see the, the, the millions of stars and continue to say that we are alone in the universe, isn't that the height of arrogance? That's right. Humanity's entire existence accounts only about 2% of one galactic revolution. 
and we're just one of, of well over uh, a billion galaxies, and we can add zeros to that in terms of the findings of the Hubble Space uh, Telescope. We're just so insignificant from a, a material standpoint, but from a spiritual viewpoint, we're very, very important. As the Christ figure tells us in the New Testament, so the soul, the human soul, you know, the seat of consciousness is worth all, uh, and even more than all the riches of, of the world. And we feel, and this is the importance of our dialogue today, is to state in effect the keys of Enoch show the importance of our spiritual evolution. And if we lose sight of that, then really the game is lost in terms of going to the next stage. Right, because uh, first of all, I think what's going to be unique, and we haven't quite confirmed it yet, of course, uh, on a planetary level, but that we're not, we call ourselves the Adamic species, for lack of a better word, and we feel that we're going to find ourselves out there in space. And as I said, not the only species out there. But what, what that means is that we didn't evolve from here, that we're part of a greater galactic federation. Now, in addition to that, if you consider that we are more than physical flesh and blood and we actually have soul consciousness abilities almost like what we showed in uh, what they showed in avatar that our consciousness is connected with the whole universal mind or the whole universal field and that we can actually do things with our consciousness that's what we've been cut off from we don't realize that we can actually create new realities or create realities for ourselves and do things. And, and I think that's been our limitation. And once we start growing out of that limitation, we start really seeing our own potential. Let's put things in, in, in practical terms because this is so fascinating. You said that we have been cut off from the connection with the oneness, if you will. What has been done to cut that link between all of us that we can create a new reality, if you will? Well, what has been done in the past, basically, we've had uh, just the limitations of how intellectual knowledge has been handed down with so many different uh, isms vying for power. The, the inner language has been lost, and the, the emphasis has been placed more on the differences rather than the points of spiritual and, and metaphysical unity. Right, just to start again, uh, I think the idea is the, the idea of power, and I know your show sometimes goes into this, that there are those who want to uh, be in power and want everyone else to follow power. And in order to do that, you have to say that no one has any greater abilities. If everyone understood that we all have very powerful abilities, I know even just the basic TM meditation uh, studies showed that if something like less than 10% of the planet started meditating, we could actually change the consciousness of the planet. Of course, it's very hard to get 10% of the planet to start thinking positive, but why is that? And we feel that there's limitations both uh, from the information on this side of reality that we're being fed from different levels, and all levels are doing that, from what we consider the economic level, from the political level, from the scientific level, and from even the archaeological level. They're all trying to keep a certain maintenance of energy, maintenance of power, but ultimately, once we break through that, we will see our higher potential. And our Academy for Future Science advances the science of consciousness and human experience to serve individual and collective transformation. And we're doing this to finding basically the missing track record of the human uh, experiment in, in the physical world. We're looking at the, the metaphors of ancient language 
that suggests that there is greater similarity between the great religious and spiritual traditions of Mother Earth. And we're looking at a, a focus on exploring new global perspectives that blend wisdom conditions with modern science, and so people can look at a whole new linguistic or language approach of how human rights can be uh, reprogrammed, given an opportunity to experience mind over matter realities, and basically be aware that we are rapidly approaching a whole new transition period in history that will mark the change of everything that we know. In fact, we believe the next 10 or 20 years will show a tremendous quantum change in all aspects of knowledge, information gathering, the whole technical evolution properly managed along with the spiritual uh, upliftment side of rediscovery, we believe will create a whole new type of species we call uh, space kind rather than humankind, space kind that recognizes the new frontiers of a greater universe, a living universe that is far more positive than negative. Yeah, and so really there's a higher overriding factor that's going to break through the limitations that we've been fed for the last uh, 6,000 years, for example. And the keys even talk about this is the speaking serpent that says there's no life beyond, don't quest higher knowledge, uh, you are God, you know, this is all there is. And when you have that consciousness, then you actually fall into the trap. And the whole idea is to know who we are, which is really much more than what we see ourselves in a three-dimensional uh, body. We need a, a knowledge revolution. But speaking of knowledge, what does knowledge mean in the context of the Book of Knowledge, the, the Keys of Enoch? Knowledge here is the, the whole higher stream of information uh, that is part of, of how the individual and the collective are unified. It's a primordial gnosis, to use a technical term, the knowledge that is before history and before the keeping of records as we know it. In the tree of life, it's, it's a concept of the author, hidden knowledge that allows all parts of the inner mind, the inner psyche, to be in attunement with the greater mind of the universe, the oneness of what we call the universal intelligence. And I think on a basic level, uh, Dr. Jack wrote a book, I think you mentioned it, called End of Suffering, and it uh, talks about a little bit of remote viewing. And why is remote viewing related to suffering? Well, when we start seeing that we are literally all interconnected and we can be here sitting in California, but also see what's going on somewhere in Europe or somewhere in Africa and be part of that, which remote viewers have been able to do and it's been proven, then we can start realizing that we're not just, you know, the poor me sitting here, you know, at a table somewhere in, in Northern California or in Southern California or in Mexico or wherever you want to say, we are part of a greater universe. And any information we want, basically, if we put our energies towards that, we probably can receive even information that has never been on this planet before we can tap into. And I think Einstein did that. We, we knew uh, some of the people that lived in one of the houses Einstein had lived in, and he would go up and meditate every morning. And we that's, believe... That's it, uh, toward the end of his life. Yeah. We're talking about the mature Einstein that his students at Princeton wouldn't want to recognize. The Einstein who wrote that the mystical experience is the true foundation of science. The Einstein that uh, was able to read extensively metaphysical literature towards the end of his, his physical life and suggest that there was more to the, the whole universe than we think. That is to say, the material universe. So we are suggesting... That to answer your question, knowledge, people need to understand the Greek word for, for knowledge, which is gnosis, 
which is also noetic with the ability to explore information to the inner mind. And this happens to be also the term that astronaut Mitchell used when he came back from outer space to set up his program called the Noetic Institute, basically the knowledge that links us here as, as humanity, as earthlings, with the vastness of creation in the greater universe. And I want to say hello to Dr. Mitchell, uh, who listens to the show, and of course, uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. But you couldn't ask for a better co-author to write that book with you, a remote viewer, Russell Targ, and then you have people like Ingo Swan. I always laugh when I hear that when you talk about remote viewing to the government, they say, well, that, that, that's just baloney, that does not exist, when they actually use it for their own purposes. Why is there a big disconnect? Why do they pretend that this is just voodoo science? Well, I think it's like the cells in the body, our brain cells fire information at trillions of bits per second, and by the time the information feeds down to our fingertips and our toes, it's a few uh, seconds later, and the, the scientists and the spiritual thinkers are like the brain cells on Mother Earth, and it takes sometimes a few years before the information goes down to the lower circuits of the body politic. It's, so in, in many ways, the game that is played by the nation states is to keep ahead of the competition, and a lot of the great breakthroughs in science and inner connectiveness with other aspects of reality are kept pretty much to the to the hands of the few until the right reality game opens up for the many. Yeah, but for a long time it really was uh, top-secret research, but now in the 90s they started being able to re- release it. So for those in the know, if you talk to them and they, you ask them, you know, on a government level, you know, was there remote viewing technology or research being done, you know, they'll, they'll now say that there was. But, of course, many people aren't familiar with it and they're in a different branch of the service and they just think it's crazy. But uh, those in the know will, you know, can honestly say that there was a project that they were a part of, but it only came out in the 90s. And so it still hasn't taken off because it's difficult. I also, many people claim to be remote viewers and don't do a good job, so it becomes that woo-woo science. And this is why Russell Tarr's contributions are so valuable, because he has stayed the course with a clear-minded attitude towards recognizing that there is a higher side to the human mind that overlaps with the the great gifts of spirituality, particularly in the documents of the Tibetan uh, Buddhistic tradition, as well as the Oriental, the Asian Buddhistic tradition, that allows the mind to go into quietude into levels of introspection as well as into levels of uh, extension and projection to gather information quickly and to return it to its source. Many people are struggling struggling right now, and it's clear that the planet economically, ecologically, and in many cases sociologically is in turmoil. Is that all completely our fault? We need definitely a Marshall Plan for Mother Earth. And there's many ways that we can tackle this, and it's not our, our fault in, the, in, in many ways. Uh, we are, shall we say, in a part of the, of the edge of our galactic uh, system, and we are being bombarded with all sorts of cosmic oscillations that make it very, very difficult for life to go on without the opportunities of, of finding, as it were, a a coordination of life as we know it here with the next evolutionary round of existence. But on on practical levels, it is 
our prerogative to take uh, the high frontier and to take a higher ground of recognizing the unique genius of the human race that has survived the many cataclysms, the many different disasters. And if we look very carefully at the mythology of our ancestors who learned to breathe underwater momentarily or find refuge in the mountain areas of Asia and the Near East, we will recognize that there's a tremendous genius that can be tapped and that this bodes well for the survival of some portion of the human race. Right. Certainly the economic uh, situation around the world has been uh, generated by a lot of greed and uh, egotism from various peoples. But in actuality, as coming from an area of ecology and we've studied the uh, water levels and different things going on, say we were just recently in Australia and we were close to an area uh, outside of Brisbane where even on the news they were saying this town had like 10 days of water left. Now, uh, the government is starting to use desalinization plants and hopefully green desalinization plants to, to make changes, but we're really moving on this so late because we didn't see the changes coming. So the, when it comes to the environment, I think scientists have really uh, not realized the seriousness of what's going on. And, and we do think we've done some of this to the planet, but for the most part we feel it's, it's another cycle or maybe even a major cycle of change that uh, we really need to be prepared for on a much greater level. And a few years ago, Desiree and I were uh, presenters at the high-level summit of the United Nations in New York in 2007, and we were privileged to work with those with the Intergovernmental Commission on Climate Change, who stated, and I quote from one of the documents, that we had 10 years to, to correct our situation with greenhouse gases. Uh, if we did not do that, we would see the demise of approximately one-third of the planet's animals and, um, and uh, food sources. Uh, this uh, was a tremendous wake-up call for people in the audience, and many government leaders that I talked to in Europe were, were, were really flabbergasted, taken back how quickly this change is coming. And so, on one hand, there's this tr tremendous drama unfolding from the, the top end of some of the world's best scientists who now accept the UN and the intergovernmental reports, making the government uh, environmental sound like theologians, saying that the end is coming. On the, on the other hand, you have the myths and the teachings of Aboriginal people we've talked to in the outback of Australia and in the jungles of Brazil and the highlands of the Andes that speak of the return of the star people, the coming of higher cosmic intelligence. And there's, there's a cosmological modeling taking place right before our eyes, and we have to be very careful in recognizing that we have an opportunity to go with the upper blueprint of evolution, or we can simply uh, give up and go with the downward blueprint of evolution that happens every so many thousands of years. So are you a proponent or of the opinion that global warming is man-made? Well, we only attribute maybe 15 to 20 percent to man-made, but we also feel, you okay. know, if you can solve some of that, that might help a little bit or give us a little bit more time to get some of these technologies in place. And, uh, you know, we don't necessarily feel, I, I think I, I've heard from some of your reports, of course, you are concerned about 2012. We are concerned about the future, and we do feel that there are planetary, like cosmic um, ray um, bombardment that's coming on. In fact, the Keys of Enoch, of course, talk about that. In fact, they talk about 
the whole concept of the um, magnetic fields and the solar flares as being key to some of these uh, major changes that will take place on the planet. And this is why the keys were given in 1973, to prepare people for a whole new cosmological modeling that we had to be prepared for, which included the rapid melting of the North and South Pole at a rate that would be five times the mathematical models postulated for that time. Of course, we were laughed at, but now we find in recent uh, research reports going on that the ice is melting so quickly at the at the North and, and South Pole that people expect that everything is going to be, should we say, open sea in the not-too-distant future. So we, we are... We're being thrust into a situation that is really uh, up for grabs. And this really requires us to go back to the drawing boards and recognize, as our ancestors did, that uh, Mother Earth was also Spaceship Earth and that periodically it would go through a house cleaning and a cleansing if it was in this turbulent situation. And we would have to uh, learn to adapt as guests of Mother Earth. So through the book... The Keys of Enoch. How can we really understand, if it were a guide, evolutionary change and our part in it? Well, we would have to, first of all, recognize there's a whole teaching series of tapes that Desiree and I have made available that go with the book. It's something that's in the form of a code, which means that every uh, sentence uh, has a unique mental picture, requires the use of language as meta-language or a language of vibration, a uh, language of languages that bring together different levels uh, of knowledge. And here we're using knowledge as, as uh, knowledge on the molecular level, on the genetic level, on the biological, cybernetical level, on the psychological, mental level, and so on and so forth, all the way up to the spiritual level. To, to deal with these seven levels simultaneously requires a holographic use of language. Uh, some uh, popular writers think of neurolinguistics. We're referring to transformational linguistics, where we sit down and teach people how to use certain phonemes and morphemes of vibration or the particulars of language that are expanded through consciousness expansion. And through this, one is able to connect the dots of different levels of information being taught simultaneously. And why is the book so complex? This is how the human mind is. The mind is full of computer banks, and the mind thinks simultaneously on many, many levels. And so this is the inner networking that we're saying is now possible as we go through this cybernetic revolution, this consciousness evolution, and this, this cosmological evolution all at the same time. We, we are being prepared to stand in our nakedness before the divine mind and say we are ready. We are ready to be connected with the higher worlds on a positive level, we're willing to go beyond negative thinking, downward spiral information uh, does not serve us well, nor does it serve the human race well, if it's simply dead end game. And, you know, on a very practical level, people read the book and they say to us, you know, where should we move, What's, you know, what would be safe? And what we're trying to say is that uh, one needs to develop their own inner guidance, their own inner knowledge, and it's not just uh, from themselves, but they have to co-participate with the greater universe, with their higher cosmic 
uh, beingness. And when they do that, they know what to do. They know where they need to go. And I think that's the greatest message in the Keys. In addition to the fact that, yes, there will be extraterrestrial contact, there will be spaceships that will be seen, even in some cases picking up people from the planet in a positive way. But that's all external. The internal connection has to be made first. In other words, the connection we have with our divine counterparts that is not a technical connection, but one that is a mental and spiritual, that there's purpose and, and meaning to the whole experience of life. Otherwise, it's just the exchange of one technology from another, one type of uh, belief system for another. It has to uh, be a, a complete transformation. This is why I use the terminology transformational linguistics, where we can communicate, we can vibrate, we can dance and sing with our cosmic brothers and sisters who are really part of the positive endowments of creation and not simply go with those who play intellectual games or involve us in genetic engineering against our free will. This has been the problem why many government experts have been so down on the so-called extraterrestrial story is because there's just a lot of not-so-nice uh, characters or uh, stakeholders involved in what's going on behind the scenes. You mean abductions, that of course that's all against free will. But you mentioned the practical aspects, people asking you where should we move, what should we do, and a lot of people tell me, well, you need to move away from the desert, or you need to start buying silver or gold. But what happens to the average person out there that has a job or a business and cannot move and does not have the capital to buy gold or silver or, or, or even make that transition somewhere else? What do you suggest to those of them who are, quote-unquote, stuck? Well, you know. I think one has to move to the inner psyche. One has to move to the inner vibration of the heart to feel that happiness is a state of mind no matter what the situation is around uh, portrays. In fact, we're, we're seeing the, the uh, shall we say, the economic game being played to its fullest, uh, let's say chutzpah to the 24th power with the Federal Reserve System uh, coming out with a whole new deck of cards every other year. And, and it's a situation of serious concern for many people who, as you say, don't have the opportunity to cash in for a, a bucket of of silver or gold or do not have relatives living in Kansas and Missouri that they can spend their remaining years. I think that's a whole, uh, shall we say, momentary survival kit that will not work in the long run. The long run is that if we have a cosmic journey in the universe, and if there are superior cultures, the keys of Enoch call a higher evolution, and that higher evolution is capable through a, a much greater system of consciousness physics to interconnect with the powers of our mind, then we should open our mind and heart for that connection with the Christed sources or the higher divine sources that can come through and feed us the information like the ancients portray in the deserts of Judea who were aware of what the psalmist speaks of, the, the uh, language of the songs of the divine. Right, so what we tell people, if they're a social worker or a nurse or a fireman or something, you know, you need to sometimes be in the major cities, even though these cities may be, you know, the worst place in the world to be, but that's part of your mission, that's part of your work. And we feel we're going into a what we call a space-time overlap. And that means that we will have insights on what we need to do if we open ourselves to that. Uh, we're telling people, you know, find your spiritual family of light. Sometimes, you know, our 
study groups and stuff like that are able to do that, but many people have their own spiritual families. That's what they need to find. And then they start working on a soul level. And, you know, we've manifested here many times. Look, at it's been at least 6,000 years of history, probably 36,000 years of history. Many people have been coming back for an awful long time. So why worry so much about that one little physical manifestation you have now? Worry about your whole consciousness being. And if you really want to get off the planet, then do it in a higher spiritual way, not just in some sort of, you know, practical, physical spacecraft to take the next ride out. And Desiree, you're not speaking of people who are leaving behind their social responsibilities by trying to get off the planet. You're speaking in the sense of having completed the, the whole experience of life as Adamic pilgrims being prepared to go on to the next phase of the galactic schoolhouse. Right. And you have both, and this is one of the things I really like to talk to people like you who have been exposed to different continents and, and, and you have both traveled around the world and studied ancient civilizations. Is this the first time humanity has experienced some major environmental change? No, we've, we've seen uh, many, many uh, polar reversals. In fact, the geologist uh, who was in the Carter administration and also uh, the, the great uh, geologist who was the last person on uh, the moon, um, Harrison Schmidt uh, has looked at the dynamics of change. We, we, we know that we've gone through many polar reversals. We know that there are, are unique similarities of, of what we found on the moon and things that are in the elemental table of what we have here on Earth. It's, we, we definitely have seen that there have been situations of dramatic change and that we are simply in the process of going through one now in its very early stages. Right. If you go back to your history books, they'll tell you that we came to the New World here in North America and South America through the Bering Straits about uh, 11 now, maybe 12,500 years ago with Clovis. But actually, Dr. Tech and I were just down in Chile, and there's an area there called Monteverdi, um, which is uh, a very beautiful area, and they're starting to find evidence of a civilization that was there 33,000 years ago. And there's another area in Brazil that they're looking at possibly as old as 50,000. And then here in um, North America, there's an area called the Topper Site being investigated by the University of South Carolina that is claiming upwards of 50,000 years. And there's actually an area in Mexico that might be claiming as much as, or has in the past claimed as, er as early as 50,000 to 100,000 years ago. So, you know, where are these people? Obviously, there have been major changes, and civilization continues to survive. So when I speak... By the way, I'm getting, I'm getting a lot of crackling yeah, on I, your side, by the way. Let me see who, whose phone that is. I don't know how it's built up. Let me just say this, that uranium-236 and neptunium-237... Uh, were lunar samples brought back by those who were part of the Apollo 12 and 14 uh, expeditions. These were elements never found on our our planets. So, you know, we have certain situations that uh, bespeak of vast uh, changes that took place, not only on our planet, but also in outer space. Well, one last question before we take a break. A lot of people to this day, are fascinated by the enigma of the pyramids. We all want to know wh how they really were built, etc. But why were there three main pyramids built in Giza? Are they simply tombs for pharaohs, or was there a different purpose? You know, this, this subject on the pyramids would take a whole week of dialogue with you to go into it, but basically there's more than three pyramids in Giza. These are the three largest and the the 
romantic writers of all ages have questioned, you know, the purpose of the pyramids as devouring the sands of history. Uh, we have had an opportunity to work with geologists, archaeologists, remote sensing experts beneath the Giza Plateau, beneath the pyramids, and we have found an interconnecting series of tunnels suggesting a vast labyrinthian system and other structures, including smaller pyramids that are there under Giza, yet to be explored and understood. So if we use the keys of Enoch, the pyramids uh, represent a schoolhouse that was set in motion uh, thousands of years ago in the, the classical Egyptian period is really a time to understand how, shall we say, the knowledge of the ancients was collected in one part of the world in these pyramids, which were used as libraries information, as schoolhouses of knowledge, as places where energy was transduced and used for various experiments. Right. So the keys, uh, can you hear me? Oh, we're okay on this. Yes. The keys uh, talk about the pyramids as uh, really crackling. Yeah. All right, maybe it's just interference that we should break and see if we can recalibrate. But uh, I will simply say that there's going to be significant findings in Egypt to validate with the keys of Enoch. Tell us about inner chambers that will be found inside the Great Pyramids and other information sources. Uh, we, we found in our exploration uh, under the sands um, a, a, a series of artifacts that show high levels of radiation. Uh, and when this was privately examined by scientists from several government think tanks, they were amazed that uh, the Egyptians would be capable of making this type of, uh, of, uh, of, shall we say, small crystalline material that could have such high radiation levels so many thousands of years later. And so it's a, a knowledge of certain experimental chambers that have yet to be found under the sands of Egypt, it would be the um, the source of a good feature film. And this is something that I've discussed with others, including Sakaria Sitchin, that uh, the the uh, Sinai Peninsula has also areas where crystalline sand is there, almost as if a nuclear uh, detonation occurred thousands of years ago. Could this be the same? Well, I brought back one sample to California, and there was a blue-green light emission that took place that was not fully explained. Uh, I'm going to let you recalibrate this program because we're not we're getting static. Yes, this is a great time for, for us to take a break. And, uh, we're here with uh, Drs. J.J. Hurtak and Desiree Hurtak. Stay with us. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to The Veritas Show, and we'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Crystal Clark, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.